looking at a revelation and a rebuke. Peter was a recipient of both of these things in Mark chapter 8. And when we see, as we, we take a look at this passage, that one minute he is blessed for the gift of discernment, and in the next minute he is uh, he's humbled. He's, he's brought low with a sense of his own spiritual need or, or, or depravity. Now, church, I want to say to you right at the outset, if you have ever experienced uh, the same kind of highs and lows in your discipleship journey, take courage, join the club. This is part of what it looks like to walk the path of discipleship. I want to tell you a story as we get into this. When I was about 10 years old, I was, uh, I was really experiencing a moment of blessing. I, I was uh, wrestling at the time. I was uh, competing at a, at a pretty high level for that age. I was, I was winning a lot. And uh, I, was, I was being blessed. I was being uh, empowered and encouraged by a lot of people. And as the season was coming to an end, you know, as local competition was coming to an end, we began to move into some, some regional and, and some statewide and even some national competition. And I was on a roll. Man, I was, I was on a roll. I was, I mean, for, for 10 years old, I was, I was doing really well. But I was about to be humbled. Um, you, you see, at, at about that time, I was pretty sure that I knew some things. You know, I, I had that kind of 10-year-old certainty. And, and what, I, what I was sh pretty sure that I knew, and when, in fact, I was more than pretty sure, I, was, I mean, there was, a, there was a certain piece of information that I was certain I understood. And that was that kids who walked out onto the mat to compete, if they, did, if they didn't walk out onto the mat with a singlet, uh, if they didn't come out with like the official shoes, you know, if they, if they kind of came out there uh, in, in street clothes and, and uh, tennis shoes, we, we just knew that that kid was a fish. You know, I mean, let me explain that. If he, didn't, if he didn't have all that stuff going for him, what was likely to happen is he was going to walk out onto the mat, he was going to flop around for a while, until he went belly up, rolled over onto his back, and died a death of pinning. Now, I was... I was pretty certain of this. I mean, generally speaking, this was true, but not on this day. I was about to suffer one of the losses of my early life. I went from uh, feeling like a hero to feeling like a zero pretty quick, and the short of it is I got beat by a kid in 1980s short shorts and cheap sneakers. It was embarrassing. Um, I mean, it was, it was painful. I didn't really know what I thought I knew. But it was a humbling that I needed to, to become a more complete wrestler. 
Now, let's take a look at how Peter experiences his own highs and lows as he takes this journey that we call discipleship. Stand with me. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. We read here that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You can be seated. Now, there are two crucially important things that we need to understand as disciples. And, and both of them are things that Peter comes to understand in this passage. Those two things are... Who is Jesus and who are we? Who is Jesus and who are we? Now, we're going to consider both of these as we unpack this passage. Let me, let me just say that this passage is not exhaustive on either topic, but, uh, but it does teach us some vital truth about both if we can receive it. So, I want you to put yourself in a position of receiving this morning. Be ready to receive what the Word is communicating, okay? Now, if we look at this chapter in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asks what I think is a loaded question. I mean, it's actually probably an understatement to call this a loaded question. Because down through history, people have said that this is actually the most important question of all time. Who do people say that I am? In other words, Jesus says, who do they think I am? We see here from the answers given in the text that most people seem to think that Jesus is, well, he's an important religious leader. He's apparently some kind of holy man. Or, or maybe a prophet. That's what we understand when we hear them referring to him as some kind of Elijah or John the Baptist. But, but you know what? These are really just common answers. People of this time were spoken of in these ways before. And actually, if you, if you go down through history, in many uh, cultures and religions of the last 2,000 years, well, people would agree with this assessment. They would, they would say that, yeah, sure, Jesus was that. He, he was certainly some kind of a holy man. But what disciples need to know is how important is he? I mean, is he just a prophet with some words of truth? Or is he something more than that? 
Now, let me qualify a few things as we look at this question and as we answer it. Jesus is not asking this question because he does not know the answer. Jesus isn't asking because he's unsure of himself. He's not asking because he's insecure. Jesus isn't asking this question because he needs a pep talk or to be affirmed. Jesus knows who he is. And the text shows us that. It shows us that when Peter responds with an answer to this question, that Jesus accepts this title of Messiah and all of its implications. So the question here is rhetorical. Uh, Jesus is, is aiming with this question at revealing something and really doing that to some kind of dramatic effect. Now let's take a look at the moment when Jesus actually asks this question. It says here in the text that he's with his disciples and they are approaching this town called Caesarea Philippi. Some have actually called this a city with an identity crisis. If you go all the way back into antiquity, into the Old Testament, this place was once called Baal Hermon, partly because it worshipped the god Baal. Then, as history and time moved along, it became known as Peneus, because there the Greeks worshipped the god Pan. And now here in the time of Jesus, it's called Caesarea Philippi. And it was known as a place where cultural values and, and religious devotion were displayed in Roman marble columns and opulent temples where there was emperor worship. In fact, this place is a place where the most important river in all of Judaism finds its source. Here in Caesarea Philippi, the headwaters of the Jordan River actually spring up from an underground well inside of a cave. So here's Jesus. He's standing with his disciples on the outside of a city that is littered with the influence of Syrian gods and Greek gods and Roman gods and Roman wealth and cultural sea, or rather emperor, uh, emperor worship. And, and, and here even there's this sense of uh, sacred Jewish memory as the headwaters of the Jordan spring up from a well in this, this underground cave. And, and it's as if Jesus is deliberately setting himself against this background and all of its importance aiming at one thing the revelation of his superiority you see this may have been a city that was going through an identity crisis it may have had ongoing conflict over the value of various cultures and religions but Jesus had no conflict with his own identity. He knew who he was. But for the sake of the disciples, he asked the question again. He spins it a little differently. He says, okay, 
Well, who do you say that I am? And here we see Peter responds. Now, you don't see it here in the Gospel of Mark, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter actually says, you are the Christ. Christ is, is the Greek word for Messiah, and it means the anointed one. And I, and I want to tell you, folks, Jesus understood this sense of his identity. He understood his own anointing. In fact, let's think back to Jesus' first public message. Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes out in the beginning of his sermon. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now, these words are, are dripping with a sense of his own significance. I mean, when he says these words, he's actually identifying himself with all the sovereign authority and power that belongs to the one true God. But that's not all he, he, he does here. I mean, this, this choice of words that he has, they're, they're kind of unique, kind of actually really um, one of the reasons why the people were so frustrated with Jesus and upset with him at the end of this message is because the way he used these words, I mean, Jesus was not just saying words. Jesus was proclaiming something about himself. You almost might say, if, if Jesus did not know who he was, that he was doing some kind of like chest pounding. I mean, there's a double emphasis in, in his words. I mean, when he speaks of the sovereign Lord, this is actually a redundancy. When, when Jesus says these words, sovereign Lord, it's like he's literally saying, the spirit of the Lord's Lord is on me. He's, he's claiming a kind of double sovereignty and double anointing. Jesus is, if there's any such thing as a holy swagger, I've often heard my, some of my mentors speak of a holy swagger. If there's any such thing as that, he has it right here. And these are, are not the words of somebody who is unsure of their identity. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says many will claim to be the Messiah, but they're false Christs. Maybe they're people's Christs, but I'm the only Lord's Christ. He claims for himself this title, and it is one of utter authority and he doesn't apologize and this is what Peter affirms in his words in response to the question he gives the right answer and man is he about to receive a blessing for this response and we don't see it in Mark's gospel but in Matthew's gospel we see that Jesus actually empowers Peter he blesses him big time. I mean, he, he calls him blessed. He tells him that 
he's probably going to have some kind of a, a special role in the whole history of the church. He, he, he literally says, you have received a revelation from heaven. This is God sent. You didn't figure this out. Man, I mean, he's, he's building Peter up. He even gives him a holy nickname. How many people like nicknames? I'm, I'm a nickname guy. I've had a few good ones uh, over the course of my life. We won't get into that. But, but here, before he's Peter, he's, he's Simon. You guys know what Simon means? Simon is Greek for snub nose. That's what Simon means. I am snub nose. Peter needed a nickname. But, but after this moment, he, he's known forever as Peter, the rock. I mean, this was, this was a high moment, and, and it should be. Quite honestly, it's a miraculous moment. Peter didn't come to this by his own sense of, of intellect. He didn't come to this by his own power. Ephesians 2 tells us that people don't just naturally have these kind of moments. In fact, what Ephesians tells us is that people are dead in their trespasses. Now, that means that they are spiritually dead. You know what that means? They're spiritually dead. So, so for Peter to have come alive in his understanding of who Christ was, was because God miraculously brought him into that understanding. He brought him out of spiritual death into spiritual life. There was something that moved beyond the natural and into the supernatural here. And if you've come to see Christ for who he is, you've been a part of this too. You're blessed. You've received divine revelation. You have been a part of a miracle. And it should excite you that God has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. How many of you can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found? How many of you can say that? Amen. You have permission to say amen. You have permission to appreciate that and get excited about that and be enthusiastic about that. I imagine Peter was excited. He's probably on an emotional high. He probably had a spiritual buzz going. That's okay. It's okay. It's good. Because, now let me tell you something, true revelation, true revelation will bring you some incredibly awesome moments in worship. When you see Jesus for all that He is, if it doesn't move something in you, I, I, I question things. So it's okay. That's, it's a good thing. But you know, it should do more than that. It should humble us as well. Remember, revelation doesn't come by your own doing. It doesn't come by your own... Um, natural ability. It doesn't come by flesh and blood, Jesus says. It comes as a gift. And if it comes as a gift, 
That means it's not inherent to you. It came from somewhere else. It should humble you. And that's not what happens here. Something is disconnected. Peter, Peter doesn't respond in humility. He actually responds in pride. Now, it's, it's, we, gotta, we have to understand some things about, about this. Peter had the right answer. He really did. But, but he didn't have a full understanding. I mean, we, we see in the text that he answers the question, but then Jesus has to come in and expound on the meaning. And he does. He speaks of a Messiah who will suffer and be rejected and die. And Peter's confused. I mean, Peter actually knows just enough to really mess things up here. I mean, calling Jesus the Messiah was right, but, but he didn't fully understand what he was saying. Peter thought like most people did in the culture in which he lived. And, and most of those people, when they thought of the Messiah, they thought of a political superman. They thought of somebody who was going to come in and do things in a certain way. You see, at the end of the Old Testament period, this word anointed came to take on a, a specific connotation. An anointed king, or the anointed Messiah, was understood to be an ideal king who came with great power and anointing by God to establish a national kingdom. To some, he would be a king who would, uh, who would establish a, a theocratic rule over a newly reestablished uh, Israeli nation-state or Jewish nation-state. Uh, to others, he would be a military ruler who would come in and kick butt and take names. Many people understood him to be somebody who was going to overthrow the ruling Roman Empire and one thing all of these understandings of Jesus had in common was that the Messiah would come and bring glory and honor and victory and power and freedom from oppression for the Jewish people. I mean, most notably, the Messiah would come in strength and might and rule, and it was unthinkable that a Messiah would ever come to suffer anything or face any kind of rejection. Never before now had anybody in history ever connected suffering with the Messiah. Now, sure, there were those kind of uh, mysterious prophecies in the Old Testament that Isaiah spoke of, there being some kind of a suffering servant. But nobody before Jesus ever associated those prophecies with the hope of the Messiah. And, and you know, from this vantage point in church history, we, I think we look back and we think, how did they miss this? But, you know, if we're honest, I, I think we stumble over a suffering Jesus too. I mean, our cultural understanding of success looks nothing like this. Nothing. You know, our, our cultural understanding of success, you know, it doesn't look like rejection. It doesn't look like a criminal's death. It doesn't look like shame. It looks like honor and reputation and, and status. 
It looks like always having a winning performance. That's how we understand success. And Jesus identifies with the messianic legacy of loss. And that scares us. Loss means pain. And you know as well as I do that we are trained to avoid that. But, but Jesus, he didn't avoid it. He wore it like a badge of honor. I mean, here he is, he says it was his destiny. Why? I mean, why did Jesus have to suffer? Let me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been wrong? Has anybody ever done you wrong? Sure they have. Say someone wrongs you financially. If they, say, maybe they take 200 bucks from you. I mean, do they owe you? Yeah, they owe you. I mean, if they steal what belongs to you, there's a debt. Now, either you can make them pay that debt, or you can say, you know what, no, it's all right. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. But, but say that that $200 was designated for an electric bill. I mean, you still have to come up with the money for that bill or Duquesne Light is coming over to cut off the juice. You're going to be in the dark. So either they have to pay or you have to eat it. You have to eat the cost. Now, let's transfer this. Say somebody comes along and they steal your contentment. Maybe they, maybe they come along and they steal your opportunity. Do they owe you? You bet they owe you. If you believe in any kind of justice, there's a debt. Now you can try to make that person pay by trying to damage their contentment or damage their opportunities. But if you do, if you go after the debt to make them suffer, you know what happens? You become just like them. It's damage for damage. It's harm for harm. And every time you choose that, you become a little colder and a little harder How many of you understand what I'm saying? Church, there's, there's one other alternative. One. And it's forgiveness. But you know what? It's not easy. It isn't. I mean, quite honestly, forgiveness, if you've ever had to do any real forgiving, is often agonizing. Why is it agonizing? Why is forgiveness agonizing? Well, because there's still a debt, and forgiving them is going to cost you. Church, let me, let me just say to you, there is always pain 
with true forgiveness. Always. And you know, that's why Jesus is a suffering Messiah. The only way that God can forgive your sin and my sin is to suffer. Either you suffer for them, or he does. Someone's going to have to pay. And you know what? Jesus chooses the cross to absorb the cost of all of that. His glory is forever identified with suffering love because Jesus chooses forgiveness. It's who he is. It's, it's in his makeup. Now in our text, Peter doesn't have this vantage point yet. He's been given this gift of knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't really know what he thinks he knows. He's got good revelation, but he's got flawed interpretation. And also, Peter doesn't really know himself yet. He's not aware of the depth of his own sinfulness. So instead of being humbled by his experience, he becomes proud. But you know what? Peter's not alone. What happened to Peter happens to other people all the time. Listen, church, God is a, 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 a generous, miraculous, gift-giving God, and he gives people all kinds of things even though they're going to turn around and, and misuse them. I mean, Jesus gives people revelation all the time. Jesus gives people prophetic revelations. I mean, we, we are a church that believes in the spiritual gifts. We believe in words of knowledge and gifts of healing and Man, I, I believe in fresh insights in the well-read passages of, of Scripture. God is generous to us. God gives us things every day, even though He knows that we're a mess. Peter receives this, this gift of revelation, empowerment from God, and what does he do? He immediately abuses it. What happens to him is what often happens to people who receive divine blessings. They, they abuse them. Let me, let me tell you, one of the most spiritually dangerous people or person, one of the most spiritually dangerous persons is a, is a gifted but unbroken person. Somebody who's gifted and they haven't been humbled. They don't know who they are yet. You see, Peter likely thinks he's special. He probably thinks Jesus didn't give that or God didn't give that to James or John. I'm apparently better than they are. I mean, sometimes people like this, they, they start thinking they're infallible. Somebody gets a gift, they get it right, they hear from God, they deliver it and 
boom, all of a sudden, they think the next thing that's going to come out of their mouth is going to hit a bullseye every time. They become the person that can't be refused. Let me tell you, these are dangerous people. And then they become arrogant. Have you ever had anybody come around and just start, like, sniffing around your life? No? Just trying to read you like some kind of a book and, and get everything fixed? Ever had anybody do that? That's what arrogant people do. They get a little revelation from God and they think they know everything. And unfortunately, Peter becomes this, this guy. He's, he's that guy right here. And, I mean, you know, it's one thing to come and confront your pastor. It's another thing to confront Jesus. Peter confronts Jesus. I mean, the text doesn't say he quietly wondered about Jesus' hard words. It doesn't say that he asked him to clarify misunderstanding. It says that he rebuked Jesus. You know that word rebuke? That word rebuke is like usually like not used much. It's, it's, it's usually reserved for the confrontation of demons. It's not too strong to say here that Peter opposed, stood in willful opposition to the will of Jesus. Now, this is Peter. I mean, this is, this is the guy who moments ago was the star pupil. He was the guy that Jesus just prophesied about, who would become a, a man of distinction in all of church history. And in only a matter of moments, what Peter has managed to do is distinguish himself as somebody who has totally misinterpreted revelation and completely misunderstood discipleship. What is going on here? I think he wasn't even trying to submit to the will of Jesus. He was willfully opposing spiritual authority. Well, Jesus doesn't waste any time addressing the problem. He, he called it what it was. He spoke about demonic rebellion. Peter may not have known, but he was being used as a tool of Satan. Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, Peter, you don't even understand spiritual things. You don't even know what's going on. You're spiritually dumb. You, you don't have the things of God in mind. All, you're think, all you can think about is like natural things, human things. So like in one, in one moment, Peter is like totally elevated. And the next, he is totally smashed. I suspect that left a mark. I mean, Jesus cut Peter. This is hard. This is a hard word. But you know what? There was, there was mercy in it. There was mercy in that word. You know why there was mercy in that word? Proverbs says that enemies multiply kisses. But the wounds of a friend 
the wounds of a friend you can trust. You know, I, I'm like to be honest with you. I look at this passage and, I, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of shocked. Not all the time, but sometimes I look at it and I get shocked. I'm like, Peter, are you kidding me? This was like inner circle. This is like Jesus' main guy. I mean, Peter's a legend. But you know what? Jesus isn't shocked. He's not surprised. Last week, you know, I, I heard someone quote an old expository preacher uh, by the name of Stephen Olford. Any of you old Presbyterians might know who Stephen Olford is. He quoted him and he said, Jesus doesn't expect anything from us except utter failure. That almost doesn't sound right. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, is, is utter failure? Is that biblical? Well, kind of. How many of you have ever thought about the words of the prophet Jeremiah? Where he says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure. Who can even understand it. And then Paul comes along in the New Testament and he says, I know that nothing good lives in my flesh. Nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Now, Jesus was not surprised by Peter's opposition. And he's not surprised by yours. He's not surprised at all. I don't guess this morning that some of us here might not feel like we have at times stood in willful opposition to, to Jesus. I mean, we, we oppose him when we lie, when we feed our lust, when we hold on to unforgiveness, when we gossip, when we're unfaithful to people, when anything becomes so important to us that it begins to challenge that, that place of God in our life. Now, I, I would imagine that some of us here have felt like we have stood in opposition to Jesus. I mean, basically anywhere in Scripture where God has said, don't, and we do, we're standing in willful opposition to Jesus. And you know what? The, the behaviors are really the smaller part here. You know, all of these things are, are just a symptom of the sinful nature that Paul says is hostile, hostile to God. 
Let me tell you this morning that I know I have a sin nature that is hostile. Twenty years ago this month, was the first time that Jesus showed it to me. And he called it what it was. He didn't soft pedal anything. And what I saw was heavy. It cut me. It laid me out. You can ask my mom. I don't think I left my room for a week. I didn't even know what was going on until I got more understanding. Your sin nature that is hostile to God is no little thing. It will take you down if you let it. Two weeks ago, 20 years later, Jesus like peeled back the, the layer of grace that keeps you from looking at that thing all the time. And he said, here it is again. Now, the last time he dealt with all kind of behaviors as he showed me that, this time he, he just blew past behaviors. He, he went like into every corner of the house. I mean, he, he got in my face. He's in the attic. He's in the basement. He opened every door. I mean, there were times where I, I thought, I wish you'd just leave. He showed me, um, he showed me what we don't like to look at. He told me what I am. He said, apart from me, you're nothing. You can do nothing. Thankfully, this isn't where we live. He often takes us to visit. And I, and I do want to encourage you this morning. I, don't want, I want to encourage you, and I want to let you know if he's ever cut you, he's the best cut man in the business. He knows how to make a fighter. If he's ever cut you, you can be sure that he loves you. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you know who you are, and if you know who he is, you'll want him to touch you. If he, if he cuts you, you start to see. You start to be able to know where to defend yourself. If you know him for who he is, you'll know that he'll never leave your corner. 
You'll ne- he'll never be apart from you. He said, I'll, I'll never leave you. You know, when Jesus brings conviction, he also brings forgiveness. He's a suffering Messiah. He forgives our sins through his suffering. He absorbs the cost at the cross. And because he rose from death, and because he lives, there is a life that you now can live to be empowered to put to death your sinful nature. 